Welcome to the latest episode of Spirit in the Material World. I am your host, Jana Zinzi, also known as Jazz of Wander Women Travels. I am so excited to be here today with just a powerhouse in the world. Um, we've met through the Women's Work program. Shout out to Women's Work, which is an incredible women's um, business accelerator for women in tourism and travel. Um, and I had the opportunity to host a workshop, a storytelling workshop with um, our guest today, Marinelle de Jesus, who just like blew me away with her candor and her story. Um, and really excited to connect with her today. Um, she is a mountain nomad, um, a diversity, equity, and inclusion um, advocate, also a human rights defender, has such an incredible background um, as an entrepreneur, social entrepreneur, um, as a writer, and as a former lawyer. So we're going to get into her trajectory here, but um, really excited to learn more about her work um, advocating for porters on the Inca Trail in Peru and her latest documentary called um, KM82. So Marinelle, welcome. Hi, thanks for inviting me. I'm so happy to be here. Uh, excited, really. So <laughs> let's dive in. <laughs> yes. So I, as I was like kind of prefacing, I just think you have such a fascinating background um, and how you got into travel. So I'd love for you to just share what your journey has been from like DC lawyer life to self-proclaimed mountain nomad and um, how this is informed like the the work and the business that you've created for yourself now. Yeah, so I, I definitely did a, I never expected to do an unconventional turn in my life. I was a lawyer for 15 years in DC and it's human rights focused, civil rights. So I was very uh, into my work. I, I thought I was going to be a judge one day. That was the trajectory supposedly. But I actually fell in love with the mountains the same time I became a lawyer in DC. And I uh, just, kept hiking and then it became overnight. And then I ended up leading trips all over the world through meetup.com. Props to meetup. That was my training ground, believe yeah. it or not. Yeah, I just, uh, it was a hobby. I just kept on organizing trips, taking people everywhere. And then a friend of mine said, I think you you have a second career. And I thought, oh, you talk about being a judge or doing something else because I was a prosecutor. It's like, yeah, I thought about that. It's like, no, like with your hiking. And I, I laughed and I said, oh, what do I do with hiking? It's just a hobby. And um, but it seems like people sometimes see something that you don't. Yeah, they see it before you do. And um, now the joke is on me. It's just like, oh, he, that person was right. Um, so uh, that was kind of like the idea that was kind of put in my head, like hiking. How do I make that happen? Because I knew I wanted to just be in the mountains. And so I ended up just thinking about like, OK, maybe I can make it. Um, a company. Maybe I can take people all over the world and get paid for it as a business. And I was really nervous because I had no management or business uh, background. I'm a prosecutor, so I'm an advocate. That's my expertise. And I, but I just ended up going for it anyway. But there was no like plan. It was like taking one step at a time. And then eventually, um, just kind of put things together, you know, from A to B to C and just uh, discovered, you know, different ways to run the company and build on what I already know, which is organizing trips. And then one day I ended up leaving my career in 2017 when my mom died. Uh, when she passed away, that was really 
sort of the gift she left me was clarity and courage to basically say, and that was when I was almost 40. And I realized, you know, I need to like leave now. It's either you become a judge or you become a mountain nomad. And it's a crazy idea, but that was really what my thinking was, the two options. And I said, I know it's crazy to say I'm a mountain nomad, but it's really what I want to be. And I went for it. And then the rest is history. Um, it became a company. And now I write and also speak about uh, diversity and equity and inclusion. And then I did this film because of the Port of Voice Collective, which is my human rights organization. Amazing. Amazing. I love how you you've still been able to merge like that love of, you know, being a human rights advocate and defender really into your your travel work and your travel business um, to create this social impact company. So tell us a bit more about how, you know, you got involved in in the film and with the the porters um, on the Inca Trail. So, you know, just for folks to give them a, a background of like what the story is about um, and why, what led you to create a documentary about the experiences of the porters on the Inca Trail? Yeah, so I can talk about the film first. It's called K-82. It's about the Inca Trail porters. Porters are the ones who carry your bags up the mountains. Uh, they are working usually in Nepal, Himalayas. Kilimanjaro is very famous for portering. And as well as the Inca Trail, which is the classic four-day trek that's very famous because of the Machu Picchu on day four, you enter. So it's four days of hiking, but it's required you hire people to carry your bags up the mountains. Those people are called porters. And 99% of the Inca Trail porters are indigenous. And so the film is about giving them the microphone and centering the indigenous voices. Finally, for the first time, over 50 years, the Inca Trail has been in operation, but they have never been able to tell their story uh, in front of a camera. And it's not the kind of story that makes you feel really good about, you know, kind of like the typical romanticized version of tourism. It's really the reality on the ground. And that's really what I was interested in because they feel like they were si- they've been silenced and unheard for so long. And so I've been really interested in that because I think I connect in a lot of ways to silence and, and, and you know, the feeling of being shut down as a w- woman of color. You know, I've experienced that. I'm an immigrant to the U.S. To me, it resonates so much of how people want to speak and be heard, but they can't. And so I kind of somehow, to me, it's easier for me to defend other people on that in that regard versus fight for myself. So I'm so used to that. So I said, you know what, that's that's something I'm comfortable with. Let me get a production team, raise some money and make this film a reality. And initially, I didn't want to do a film because I'm not a filmmaker. I have no uh, background. But one thing I wanted to do first was write the stories, um, set in a publications, travel magazines, pitch it to the editors. But quickly, I realized it's a dead end. No one, yeah, no one wants to say yes to a pitch about Porter stories, talking about the industry and critiquing it and telling them that they need workforce equity and they need to be paid well, better, treated well, respect their indigenous rights. No one wanted that narrative on a travel magazine. And so that's when I said, well, the only option is to do a film because I can control that part, right? I'm the editor. I'm the producer. You got to make you got to create it if you can't, if you, if no one is welcoming you, you create the space and you create it on your own. And really that's how I got, I got, it made, it happened. Unfortunately, it's because of the lack of equity and inclusion in the industry that I was pushed to this point of doing it myself. Yeah. And you did this right before COVID. Is that correct? Yes. 20- it's just, uh, it's just shortly, it got done 
for the most part before COVID came. Thank God. I, I, I think if COVID came, I wouldn't have been able to finish the film because it would have been really difficult. But yeah, it was uh, filming on the ground for about six months. Uh, we were already doing research before we got the money for the funding and the film being officially launched. So I was already doing a lot of interviewing and research. And then whatever we did after we got the money, we just basically used the money to travel and do more interviews and hire the production team but yeah it happened before covid but even if the, even though it was done then the issue is so relevant still because there hasn't because of covid everything halted and stopped so there hasn't been any work on equity uh some people tried to sort of dismiss the whole idea of the border issues because oh that was back before covid it's like no it's more relevant now because you know uh because of what happened in covid they realized the porters even realized how how much more difficult their lives have been not being paid well because they don't have any safety net because of the pandemic, right? So it's more relevant. And also the Porter laws were enacted late last year. So now this film explains why the Porter laws were enacted. Give people the tour operator's background story why the Porters are fighting for their equality in the industry. I, I love that. Um, that was one of the like exciting you know, parts, not, not to have a spoiler alert, but I still think it's, you know, um, that the fruits of their labor have, you know, there was some you know, legislation around it. Right. And, and I appreciate yeah. mentioning that, like, yes, we have legislation, but how is it enforced? Like, where's the, you know, will there be accountability? And I feel like that's, you know, kind of a common thing that we think about even here in the States with a lot of legislation, it's like, great, this thing is on the books, but then actually like, how is it being implemented? And so um, I have a couple of questions. I want to circle back to that in a minute, but what I'm really curious too is about what that was like being in those communities and, you know, being an outsider, being a foreigner, you know, not being um, of the indigenous community. How was that navigating in those spaces? Um, and especially too, um, as well, they're probably not used to seeing like a brown woman from the States documentary <laughs> like crew. Um, so I'm curious about how that, what that experience was like for you. Yes, I think, uh, I think it was very much uh, a first day time for everyone for, to have a brown woman doing this and for myself, for them too, because I think they've grown accustomed. When I talk about people they work with, like the Porter president, for example, he mentioned there was a white man from Canada who helped him before, but or be there for the porters and do some work, but not a warm brown woman. So he looked at me like, I honestly, I don't think they figured out what to do with me, even to this day. Um, it's there are moments where I'm like, oh, you're one of us, but then there would be moments when like you're you're still an outsider. Um, so I think you have to ask them directly what they really think about a brown woman doing this film because I I, I sometimes feel like I belong. Sometimes oh no 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 not yet you know. Um, I think it's very difficult because I think on one hand I was able to leverage my identity as Filipina and colonize my colonized identity because Philippines was also colonized by Spain. We have some commonality with colonialism, and so when I when they talk about their stories, I can relate completely. I understand the indigenous you know erasure. I understand. And when it's an extract, you know, the appropriation and basically erasing and silencing you, I understand being colonized yet again by the modern society, even your own kind, the Peruvians themselves are doing it, right? The non-indigenous Peruvians. 
Um, so on that level, I'm able to relate very well. So I'm very cautious about how I behave around them and what I do and my motives. Um, it's very difficult. I think it's a huge responsibility more as a brown woman because of that. Because if you're a white man, I feel like you can get away with a lot of things. You can, you can just argue, I didn't know. But then it's more, it's hard when you're a brown woman because you should know. It's like this whole like argument in my head all the time. And I think I'm like the worst when it comes to critique because I'm the one always telling myself, Marinelle, you got to do it the right way. You got to do it this way. You should know. You should know because, you know, you're Filipina, you're colonized. Um, that's a huge responsibility. It's a lot of pressure sometimes for myself. Um, but in a way, it's a good thing because I am leveraging something that I am very familiar with that oftentimes has been marginalized and attacked. But then it became my own strength to to create this film with a lot of insight and meaning behind mm. it. And it's authentic because I'm, I'm able to understand them better, more authentic than a, a white protagonist carrying a bag up the mountains. Like I would never do that, you know. So uh, to me, it's it's good and bad. It's it's a it's a it's a, it's a very important uh, role to play, uh, and if you do it well, it can really benefit everyone, you know. But you know, I guess it remains to be seen how this film will go. But I hope I I just tried my best, you know, in terms of my responsibility as someone who understands the community uh, to that level. And then, but you know, it's never perfect, right? Because by the end of the day, I'm still privileged. I was, you know, I lived in America. I, I do have the financial privilege as well, being in Peru. And there are things I may never understand, you know, the dynamics of the politics there and the indigenous community, the in, ins and outs of it, I still don't know fully. I heard about it, but I never live it, right? So, um, but I think there is an advantage for the most part because I'm I'm very careful and I really listen. If anything, what I learned from the whole thing is just to listen to their story and be be, be a listener rather than someone who's telling them how sh it should be told, right? Or the story, yeah. Yeah, no, thank you for that. And, and I really appreciate the vulnerability um, as well because it is complicated knowing, you know, as women of color, you know, feeling a kinship in certain communities, right? But also acknowledging yeah. that we have, we have a level of privilege, you know, whether it's like passport privilege or dollar privilege or, you know, different things. Um, and, you know, wanting to do right by people, um, you know, and also acknowledging like, I'm never going to be part of this community to know all the, you know, like secrets and, you know, to really know what it's mm -hmm. like. And yeah. I think it's a really excellent job. And even to your point about, you know, not centering yourself. And that's what I think a lot of times ends up like to your point where it's like, you know, white guys like carrying things like up the mountain and, you know, it's, it's like that um, voyeurism or centering yeah. ourselves in the story and really being intentional um, about that. And that's, a you know, I, we were just talking a little bit before uh, we got on air um, about what that's like the intentionality of how we post about things and how we talk about things, particularly when it's regarding indigenous communities, indigenous lands, indigenous issues, um, you know, and wanting to, to show the full breadth of it, um, and still acknowledging like we are outsiders, you know, yeah. uh, and giving a voice to other people's stories. So, um, I just really appreciate you acknowledging that, um, sharing that and the part about listening to, um, because that's, yeah. Yeah. And I, I, I do want to add, um, when I started the project, I did try to see if there is a Quechua, 
speaking person or someone from the Quechua community who can be the producer or the director for this film. I wanted uh, engagement from the indigenous community, but I didn't, I wasn't successful. And so I understand that I, I would think that if, you know, I actually would have given up the project to that person for them, you know, as, as someone who can lead it, if there was that option. But I know that uh, there wasn't. And so I had to answer the question, do, do I take, you know, am I the one to tell the story? So when I asked that question, I did think about the options on the ground, whether there is a catch-up filmmaker, but I couldn't find anybody who would want to take on the project or know in the community. It's not something you find commonly, uh, you know, from that community, right? And so I said, well, I don't really want to wait. It's an important thing. And, and at that point, I was able to gain some, some trust from the community, from, from Alberto, the protagonist, or uh, the main person in the film. So I said, if he's okay with it, then I will go ahead with it. But, you know, sometimes I still think back and say to myself, if there was someone from the community uh, who did this film, it, it's possibly much, probably a better film, you know, in a lot of ways. But um, because it could have, you know, it would have added so much more. But unfortunately, I'm not, you know, I'm not that person. But I do want to put it out there, you know, like, I guess you can only do your best if you're an outsider, if you're not part of the community. And, and listening really was the only thing I could do for them. And not to center my voice, to center their voice. So, yeah. I think you did it um, expertly. And you have a diverse diversity of voices. You have, you know, a young woman who is studying to be a porter. You have the Federation. And so some of the things that I was curious about, like, um, you know, how long were you there to film this? Also, there's a part at the end where you mention um, where there's a, a woman, a Quechua woman who was talking about her family being threatened. And then you left because of threats for the you and the production company. So I'm curious what you know, what that was about, if you could share and, and what some of that experience was. Yeah. So, uh, the, uh, the threat on the ground is actually because how controversial the topic is. It's essentially, we have porters talking about their work conditions, right? So it's basically talking about what's happening on the ground with tour companies. Um, and that's why we put in the beginning in the film, this isn't about to attack anybody. This is just to talk about what they really see as a struggle for them in this industry. And I, I, it's very important to note, you know, to understand that because I don't want anyone coming out of the film or after watching it thinking that it's just an attack on a specific company or whatnot. But yeah, but it, it is real, you know. Um, I, at first, I was already warned in the beginning that I kind of had a feeling this isn't going to be a happy film to make. It's not going to be like I go to the in the field and it's gonna be all happy and joyful like you know like the story is very controversial because um for example on the ground porters are very much expected to be you know loyal to the companies that they work with there is that un undisclosed or unspoken thing where you know well if you want the job you don't talk badly about the company right which is really in general what we would do if, we're, if we work for anybody we don't want to talk badly about our employer uh so it's whistleblowing in a lot of ways for the porters who did take that risk i i really applaud them because it's a risk that they knowingly took like the way i took the same risk because i for one was also attacked on the ground because no one wanted me to be filming you know they don't want this to come out and i'm i'm starting this process with the porters. Um, and so the woman, you know, was a Borges wife. Uh, they definitely have, you know, that's really valid point. Uh, we saw bribery. 
uh, happened that's been reported. We we hear, hear about people making promises to deporters. You know, I'm, we're going to do this to, with your community. So in exchange for loyalty, so that you don't talk about the company. I've had been, you know, some companies have been nice to me so they can win my, you know, my, my, um, loyalty as well so that that happens um it's peru um i hate to say it but there is truth to some governments being corrupt in some ways and corruption does exist and so there's a lot of um you know just just these things that happen behind the scene and um and so porters face that alberta face that i face that uh so we tried our best to just basically get the truth out as as you know as much as we can and make make the best of it. I, I'm sure there were a lot more porters really that wanted to be in camera, but they said no. Um, and we understand. So whoever went on camera, they were pretty much cor- courageous to, to do so. And they weren't, you know, I never really had to ask them or pressure them. It's whoever was willing to speak their truth. Amazing. And how were you able to build trust um, coming into this community? Yeah, so I guess you you did ask me how long I was there. The filming went on for the official filming with the video uh, and my production team was about six to seven months. But the research was happening before that. So I was I was researching maybe like 10 months, 10 months in total uh, with the filming as well. But I lived in Peru for over four years. Uh, and that to me informed me very much how to create this film because I uh, my neighbors were from the Quechua community. So I get to really see the culture uh, firsthand, you know, in, in, not in a romanticized version, but as someone I know because they're my neighbors and I live in their community. And so it was very raw and real. Um, so that really helped me kind of understand what they value and their aspirations and what they want to see, you know, and how they want to be shown and how they want to speak, you know. And so um, so that was like part of the experience to live there for four years just to you know, one of the biggest, like, best advice, really, when I was doing the film is because I was, I'm very logical as a lawyer, obviously. I, I like to ask questions, so I get data, right? That's very much my um, comfort zone. And mm-hmm. when I was trying to gain trust, I did ask uh, someone from the community, from the Quechua community, uh, who I became a friend of mine in, in Peru. I asked him, I don't know, like, what is the best way to approach this? I'm not sure if I really gained their trust at this point. Is there something else I can do? Because I asked him a lot of questions. I've had conversations. I had meals with them i we we went on filming and things like that and then he said marinol stop the only thing you need to do is one thing you need to come down slow down and stop like coming up with all these questions i just want you what they what you want you to do is just to feel to feel I was like, to feel, what does that mean? And I'm like this logical lawyer, like feel like I don't do that in courtroom. I, I use words and I talk and I write and I, I'm very logical and unemotional, you know, you know, when I state facts. So to me, it threw me off, it threw me off a little bit. I was like, oh, I don't even know what that means. And I was like, okay, that the conversation just kind of like went silent. And then um, I went home and I sat on it and I was like, what does that mean to feel, you know? And I think what I, oh, it took a while to figure it out. It's really just to be there, be present with the Quechua community, to go with the flow and not just be like, okay, I have these things I need to ask. I, I mean, this is like our agenda, you know? It's to not have any agenda and just to just sit there and, and just be with them. And mm-hmm. then 
things just evolve. They would start conversing about things without even me asking. And it's just coming from their heart and they speak from their heart and they just, and that's when I knew it was real. Like the, it's more real when it comes from them, right? Versus yeah. me prompting the questions like I always do. And when that happened, it opened a lot for me. You know, it, it also was very nice because I finally understood how they were feeling because I was trying to connect more emotionally than, than mentally. And that when I got that data emotionally, that emotional part to it, I started to figure out how to tell the story. That also informed me that it isn't just throwing out words in the film and throwing data information. It's also, I want also people to feel it. How does it feel to be a catch reporter? How does it feel to be in their shoes? And I think without that emotion and the feeling and the heart, I don't know. I think the film would have just been flat. You know, I hope somehow it came across as really genuine. Like there are talking about their lives, not just the work, but who they are as, as indigenous community and what it means to be working on the Inca Trail and Machu Picchu and their, their ancestors are Incas. Yes. So there's so much feeling into it that I missed in the beginning. So that's where I should have started. Um, so yeah, so there's just so many things with this film that I learned as a person, um, not just as a storyteller, you know. What a beautiful journey. And I feel like that's such a word for like for life, you know. Um, and I think particularly as being folks from the States or in the States, yeah. You know, it's just like, go, go, go. Logical, yeah. like you said, it's that agenda. Check things off this list, you know? And what does it mean to feel, um, you know? And it is, it's like, that's like a superpower is to like be in tune with what what that emotion is and connect with people from the heart, not just yeah. you know, intellectually. Um, yeah. So I feel like I'm taking that with me, one, as a storyteller, but yeah. just, you know, um, there's a a different presence to when we're yeah. just like sitting and feeling and 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 absorbing um you know and getting out of our heads yeah uh, for this and so yeah i feel like it really comes across in the in the film you can see the difference between like you know like the intellectual kind of voice that's giving some of that background and then that, the storytelling of alberto and and, um, you know, the Federation and the Quechua community. So um, I just think it's fantastic. And one of the things I also wanted to ask about is what does this mean for travelers? So like this is happening, you know, this is a story of the porters who are in, you know, the Inca Trail, Machu Picchu. But to your point, we, you know, a lot of I, I've heard mostly about porters with, you know, the Himalayas or Nepal, you know, Mount Everest, that that tends to get a lot of attention, but then you mentioned Kilimanjaro. So I'm assuming that this is some sort of kind of, well, there's a global aspect to this. And then as travelers, how do we make better decisions? What can we do as, you know, if we want to go hike Kilimanjaro or do different types of, of activities, how do we know? Um, especially because to the point in the film, you know, a lot of the companies are, and agencies are going to say, oh, we treat the porters well, they're paid well, they fed well, et cetera. But that's not really the case. Yeah, I, I think uh, it's great to come up with this uh, question because uh, in in its essence, the film is about public awareness and education. And, you know, of course, you're hopefully people felt something when they watched the film, but it's also about 
doing something. So this is the part when we probably have to be more intellectual and mo more uh, intentional with what we're going to do from here on. I think the lesson I got out of this film as a traveler is that there's there's a lot of things that we don't know about as a traveler. It's easy to hide things uh, in general uh, within within the industry. There are th you know it's an industry, right? It will never be perfect. As much as we romanticize travel, um, it's never going to be perfect. Uh, is Everest Base Camp Trek amazing and romantic and gorgeous and beautiful and spectacular? Yes, but. The sad part is there's also a darkness to it. And if we want to be really honest as travelers and equitable and um, equity minded, we need to also pay attention to the other side of the story, which would be the dark side, the inequities that the porters face. And yes, it's global because it's not just uh, the Inca Trail porters. Whatever they reported in this film also resonate very well with the Nepal porters as well as the Kilimanjaro porters. So in a way, you're getting three in one. Even though it's just Inca Trail, I do want people to understand that whatever Alberta talked about, it's also true when we did research in Kilimanjaro and Nepal. And the reason why I do research is because we have the Porter Boys Collective organization where it focuses on both, all three industries. So the plan was to create a sort of a case study through Inca Trail because the porters in the Inca Trail were willing to speak. And that's why. Actually, there was a scene where, where actually Alberto actually was trying to talk to the porters worldwide saying, this is, film is important, you know, uh, it's going to help us. We need to rally together and have our voices uh, collectively. But we, we don't have that in the film. But but that that is really what the idea is, is to basically have Alberto speak on behalf of the Inca Trail porters, but also shed light on the porters in Peru, uh, Nepal and Kilimanjaro. And having said that... Um, what people can do is really ask questions when they buy uh, a, a tour with Inca Trail or Kilimanjaro Nepal. You have to ask those questions. You, now that you have the film, you have, you're have you informed of the situation, right? So you can always reference KM82 and say, you know, I watched this KM82. Because before, I think one thing I sense with the industry is that in tour operators, if you, they think they think they easily gaslight you. They easily can say, deny and say, that's not that's not true. That's that's not what are you, you're imagining it. Now that you have KM82, uh, you have the facts that porters have spoken up. So you can reference the porters and say, you know, I watched this film. The porters of Inca Trail talked about this. The leader of the porters talked about this. What are you doing about the conditions? So now you you don't have to feel gaslighted or dismissed because you have actual proof from the porter voices of what's happening. So using that as your tool, you can now ask questions and get real answers. Uh, you can demand uh, real answers and corroborate those. Ask them if they can support it with document. If there's a contract, ask them how much they're getting paid and see if there's it's on the contract because the new law actually says there should be a contract. And if they ask, say there's insurance, you can ask them, you know, show me a copy of the insurance uh, form. Uh, so so really, it's it's an idea of it's this idea of allyship, of creating allies among tourists, where now you can advocate for the porters by just asking questions, because when you ask questions, the tour operators are going to listen. Uh, they have to, right? Because you have the money and you're going to potentially buy the product. So they have to answer to you. Um, so that's how we hope to create the call to action with the tourists is to use that uh, idea of your tourism dollars to mm -hmm. make to ask the questions, to to highlight the porter issues by asking those questions. And and then, um, you know, having once you keep doing that, I think the operators will start getting the hint that this is important and they have to do something about it.
Excellent. Yes. Thank you for that. Um, and then how has that informed your business as well? Because you host treks. Um, so I'm like, yeah, I guess we can just tell people to go through your business if they want to. go. <laughs> Actually, that's a shortcut. If you don't want to do the work, I, right. you know, I, you know, honestly, because of the film, I stopped uh, uh, running tours in Inca Trail because wow. I don't, I actually believe in the change to happen. I'm waiting for the industry to make changes before I, I start running trips again or find a real a good partner, right? But I haven't found it yet. So I actually stopped Inca Trail Tracks on my company for that reason because I do want to support the porters and I believe that there should be an industry-wide change. Um, having said that, you know, I do have uh, operations in Nepal and Kilimanjaro that I'm running, but it's all very focused on workforce equity. Uh, it's very transparent how much we pay the porters, uh, but definitely you can definitely ask other operators. Uh, so that's how uh, I was informed in terms of uh, the film. I changed things uh, within the operations. Like I make sure I pay them exactly what they are looking for, make sure that they're covered with insurance and the people that I partner with do really care about the borders and uh, treat them, you know, like not, not like, you know, servants because that's still happening in the industry, but, equals as part of the team like team members so it definitely changed the way i run my business to the point that i canceled inca trail so maybe that's like the drastic measure i have to revisit that because it's not to say that all operators are bad but it's just a matter of doing the research and finding the right one right because i have to tell you people are still resistant even having female quarters people are resistant to that because it costs money it costs money more money to hire women than men so Really? Just so you know. Yeah. Okay. So it's 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 even difficult to find a partner who would hire female porters for that reason because women have to only carry 15 kilos and men are uh, able to carry 20 kilos by law. So yeah. yeah. That was part of as someone that packs a lot. <laughs> and I really try to pack light. I really try. Um, I was just wondering about that and like what are people carrying? Mm -hmm. It seems like tents and or um you know water yeah. clothes what so what is it um that folks need 30 kilos on their back for or on somebody's back well yeah so when you go on a support attractive porters we'll carry, we'll carry the tourist uh gear items so that would be the tents the sleeping bags the mats the clothes the snacks food um everything that they bring to the track will be carried by the porter. And so usually they would have a porter carry 20 kilos on Inca Trail. So if you want to share the load with another tourist, you can, but the maximum is 20 kilos. And, you know, mm. it's easy to, you know, to really, you know, kilos add up quickly. Weight adds up, right? As you know, when you're packing. So, um, so yeah, so definitely it's a lot of labor for the porters because sometimes, you know, even people who have cameras or filmmakers who want to bring, that's really heavy stuff. Sometimes we have clients, there are clients who bring like ca cameras and things like that. That's a lot of stuff to carry and that's a lot of weight. Yeah. Totally. Wow. 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 Um, I want to shift a little bit. We're going to wrap up in a little bit, but um, anybody, I wonder if you have any advice for folks who are, you know, maybe like novice hikers or, you know, getting into trekking. Um, if you have any advice, I've never done trekking. 
I'm a hiker, I guess. I got into it when I lived in California because everybody hikes and I'm like, I love it. Great. Um, But I'm curious if you have any tips on, you know, how to get started or, you know, for, for women in particular. Yeah. So I think the best approach is to take baby steps. Um, you know, I started out with just doing day hikes with groups like the meetup.com, which is where I started. Uh, and then from there, you can do overnight, but definitely do research. So research and taking baby steps would be like the best way to approach it as a newbie. Uh, I would say that also pay attention to your gut feeling. You know, I, I relied a lot on my intuition. If I don't feel comfortable going on five day track, you know, or going solo, which I now can do, but before I wasn't able to, um, try to pay attention to your tuition because it will tell you a lot in terms of your, uh, whether you're ready or not. And just take it slow, you know, and make sure you're very well informed when you go out. I always do research for every trip that I do. I have, you know, the, the right gear that, that will work for me. For example, I would have like the right, the maps and the navigation all set and research the trail and things like that. And if you don't want to do that, obviously, for beginners, a supported track with in Nepal or Peru, Inca Trail, those are, that's like easy way to actually get used to hiking as well because you have a, a team to mm-hmm. support you. Um, and if you're not doing supported tracks all over the world in the U.S., what I did was join Meetup and all these like hiking groups. They're like the best way to, to basically uh, practice your skills as a hiker and then a trekker one day. Is there a like one place that you feel like, well, then I now I have two questions. As I say my questions, I'm like, I have so many. Um, But like one of them, I'm like, is there one place that you feel like is a good starter point, like for beginner trekkers? I think just locally where you live, um, you know, the, the parks in your area and then I would say just the national parks, local parks uh, that that are near you that are, you know, not very high, you know, not too much altitude, just maybe uphill and downhill, but very uh, gentle. Um, But I think you don't really have to go really far. You know, um, I think with the outdoors, you have to kind of gauge how you feel about being outdoors, because I know some people who who never had done outdoors and they do need to figure out whether they even like being outside, you know? So, um, so basically just, just try to uh, go on local trails and, and do one hour here in the beginning and then add up, you know, every, every time, two hours, three hours, and then see how, how much you like it because some people can be just, Oh, you know, I can only do like three hours outdoors and that's it. Right. And then, but there are those like me who want to live in the mountains. So you have a variety and being an outdoorsy person doesn't mean you have to be like me. You can be someone who just want to walk in a park with your dog. That's outdoors because outdoors is for all, you know, and we have this misunderstanding that you have to be this kind of profile of a person to be an outdoorsy person. Anyone who just walks in their community in, in, you know, in some, some, picnic area for example a small park that's outdoors and that counts so I couldn't agree more I'm a city girl but I yeah. love I love parks I love city yeah. like yeah because that's them. nature you're surrounded yeah. that's nature right that's what it is if you're in nature you are outdoors exactly so, exactly yeah. and it's so healing um I think yeah for all of us um, and my last thing, I'd love to hear more about, you have some upcoming treks that you're doing, um, some solo treks, or do you have any trips that you're um, 
that are coming up? Yes. Um, so we do have a few actually on the Equity Global Treks website. So people can just go there and check it out. But uh, I always have Treks in Peru, an alternative to Inca Trail, for example, that we do. And then Hwai Wash Trek is another one in Peru. But we also have Mongolia on the calendar. And then uh, Kilimanjaro is something I offer. But the main thing that I'm personally doing, which is part of a campaign to elevate Nepali guides and porters, uh, is the Great Himalaya Trail in the spring of 2024. Uh, personally, I'm joining uh, the first ever Nepali women team of guides and porters that are going to finish the, oh, complete the Great Himalaya Trail over 140 days. Um, yeah. And the nice thing, amazing thing about it as a tourist or a traveler, you can join us in some of the sections of the 140 days. Uh, so there are four track sections that we're offering, including Everest Base Camp, Annapurna Circuit, Manaslu, and Langtang Valley Track. There are four tracks you can join. And then the track that you'll be joining will be led by the Nepali women and porters that are going to be completing the GHT. So you're going to be part of the campaign to elevate the women in the industry. Yeah. That is incredible. I have so much respect <laughs> for you. I'm like, that's badass. 140 days. Oh my God. <laughs> I'm excited. I feel like it's just like being at home. <laughs> so, <laughs> I mean, mountain nomad, it's like 140 days in the mountains, like the longest I could ever be in the mountains. So yeah. It's perfect. But, but I'm, I'm, I'm proud of the woman who's going to be doing it. I think uh, the reason why we're doing it is because um, uh, the Nepali guides and porters, we interviewed them, the women, and they said there is a lot of glass ceiling. As you can mm -hmm. imagine, men are getting hired for the job, but not the Nepali guide women. And the reason why they're not getting the job is because there's not enough field training. So if we can create this GHD campaign for them where they get to train actually on the Great Himalaya Trail, then we can bolster their uh, credibility as guides and porters and hopefully they get hired more. And to make a statement, really, that women can do this, you know, <laughs> because they're always forgotten, the women in the industry. You know, it's always the men in the forefront. So we need to put it out there and center their role and their voices. That is incredible. I love this so much. I'm here to support. I don't know if I'll be on the trail, but. <laughs> oh, I'll share the campaign. I'll definitely send the link when it's, when it's uh, live because we are also raising funds for the, for the campaign. Fantastic. So the, fu the funding will go towards hiring the women to do the, to do the GHD trail. And so your money is actually creating an actual job for the Nepali guides and porters. Amazing. Um, always such a joy and a pleasure to connect with you, Marinel, and to just to chat and learn more about what you're doing. So inspiring on so many levels. How can folks stay in touch with you? How can they find, you know, if they want to book a tour with you, find you on the socials? What's the best way? Yeah, so the website is rangaltrekker.com and there and then slash equity, I think BGTX. Uh, Equity Global Tracks. You can just look, look it up on Brown Gal Tracker. And then uh, then the Instagram, it's uh, Brown Gal Tracker. That's the handle. And also we have a Facebook page, uh, which is also Brown Gal Tracker. So they can follow me. They'll see all the trips there as well. And the Porter Voice Collective is the human rights organization that I have that has to do with the porters in Inca Trail, in Kilimanjaro and Nepal. And if you want to read about the porter issues and educate yourself, you can go to the portervoicecollective.org website and uh, and learn more. 
Wonderful. What a joy and a pleasure to be with you today. Thank you so much, especially your, um, you know, another continent away. So <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm great. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, thank you so much, Jenna. I mean, it was it was really nice chatting, and I really appreciate creating you know you creating a platform for the Porter voices and the film and the message and and just sharing my life and my journey. <laughs> Anytime, um, always happy to chat, and would love to have you back um, after you your 140 days. Oh, sure, um, I could. Uh, yes, I could give you an update. <laughs> that's next year exactly <laughs> year from now about yeah um, perfect awesome. it's a date yeah. and we'll be supporting um you know through wander women um you know all the work that you're doing especially this um supporting the nepali women uh porters and and that, awesome. that so awesome. so incredible well hey, thank, thank you, you again this has been Spirit in a Material World. You can find me at Wander Women Travels, W-A-N-D-E-R-W-O-M-X-N Travels on um, .com or on IG um, and also on, on good old TikTok. I'm playing around with TikTok and having a lot of fun there. So um, yes, more to come. Thank you. Be well, be safe, be loving, be kind. Until next time. Thank you.